all around the world when uh, some kill the civilians is not good so that's why we are against russia well yeah it's uh i'm glad to hear that that people everywhere who are reasonable and who are who have understanding what is happening they they um they make a proper decision and uh, they take a side and there is only one good side here the side which is against the genocide against what russia does and that said welcome ma'am and just good morning everyone thank you all to Egypt from Sari Cairo Taluj go, go ahead we interrupted you uh, yeah okay yes so on the one hand you were saying that we are supporting russia but we are also abusing russia on uh, the genocide they are killing people like vucha killings and on the other hand we are also with ukraine we have sent some humanitarian aids to ukraine also <clears throat> and overall i think uh, i see uh, the thing happening there is a big uh, uh, war between two elephants like uh, a diplomatic war between two elephants like uh, russia and the usa and the small animals in between these two elephants are uh, getting killed getting damaged like ukraine well again it's it's a pity that you you see it this way because uh, ukraine didn't choose to be invaded and uh, it, nato uh, america canada or western europe has nothing to do with it uh literally nothing to do with it it was all about one nation and one nation state russia which out of the blue for no apparent reason unprovoked just attacked ukraine invaded ukraine and started a war and shifted almost immediately into perpetrating genocide and as we see now russia planned it beforehand it was all in the planning the russia prepared the russian forces prepared 45000 body bags to kill ukrainians to decapitate ukrainian nation essentially to kill all prominent societal leaders prominent ukrainians and uh, politicians musicians uh, ngo leaders the the top of the society the plan was to decapitate ukraine and to drown it in blood and then to perpetrate genocide and uh, fortunately russians failed to do that they were pushed back but at the same time they continued to do that whenever or pardon wherever they managed to get a foothold in eastern ukraine or in southern ukraine and again it's nothing other countries have nothing to do with this it's not about nato not about something else it's just russia attacking ukraine unprovoked and perpetrating genocide simple as that there are no two elephants fighting there is just one aggressor who tries to destroy people of ukraine kill them murder them and uh, started the genocide without any 
any reason, any reason. And that said, uh, shot to you, and then we have Leonard. Thank you, but Leonard was was first, but uh, I'll be short. Uh, you, uh, Russia, uh, like in times of Soviet Union, uh, Russia did the same to Ukrainian people 90 years ago. It was called Holodomor, uh, when Russians just uh, took Ukrainian grain and all uh, lots of food supplies and people just died from starvation. Uh, it affected uh, small villages the most. People were eating like cats and you know, grass. Uh, and now they, uh, they do oh, the same people tactics. People were eating their own children. Maybe. That was, no, that, <laughs> that's not maybe, that's a fact. People were essentially eating their own children because they were starving to death. People were going mad. And because food was taken, as you described, so it's a, it's a horror. That's a horror that Russians imposed upon Ukrainians in 1930s, and uh, a genocide that is called Holodomor. Guys, I don't want to be insensitive or anything like that because of this topic right now. But um, I I have to put my child to bed right now, so I I, I could only do this real quick. But um, I wanted to ask, is there a way that I could uh, send an NFT to Ukraine? Because I heard on the news that they were accepting cryptocurrencies. But, um, you know, I'm just some broke American right now. So all I have on me is NFTs. I wondered if I could send one. Well, if you want to support uh, in any way, I believe Maria 8 accepts different kinds of cryptocurrencies. Um, so check out their website. And if you decide to make a contribution or a financial contribution in one way or another, it will transform into medical help or medical supplies and first aid kits specifically being delivered to Ukraine's front lines and front okay, line that, hospitals. That sounds great. Uh, do you think you could DM me that information so I could go ahead and do that? It's actually in the title of this space. It says help via media8.org. So just check out the website and uh, provide the information where the help is coming to and uh, the ways to contribute. Should be pretty straightforward. It's I also here in the nest. Hmm? I, I, I just was on the website right now. Um, I'm, I'm copying it right now so I could keep it. But I just wanted to unmute myself to let you know that I did uh, find the website. Thank you so much. No problem. Well, thank you, first of all, for your support. And again, spread the word. It also matters. Yeah, that's it's what I'm even, doing. It's, it, 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 it's even more important than kind of financial contribution, I would put it this way, because uh, it's the awareness that matters. And uh, people have to re be reminded of what's happening in Ukraine and about the genocide that is happening and about the ways to support or help. And Maria 8 is a good option. Many others are existent, like Come Back Alive or just donating to Ukrainian government. But this specific one, Maria 8, they deliver medical supplies and humanitarian aid, non lethal equipment and Medical supplies are being delivered to frontline hospitals. So it's a good option.
if you have a chance, if you have the opportunity, you have the opportunity, you have the possibility, just spread the word and awareness. It matters. Because eventually at the end it transforms or translates into into tangible help and saved lives. Thank you, and that said uh, to you, Leonard. Oh, um, hello, um, and th thank you for inviting me up again. Uh, I just want to make a brief comment with reference to uh, not the about two speakers back. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the lady's name was, but she was uh, inquiring about Alexander, Colonel Alexander Vindman, and I just had a, a little Joyce. bit of Joyce. Joyce. Oh, okay. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And so then this is specifically maybe to assist uh, uh, Joyce. Um, uh, Colonel Vindman was the uh, military attache in the White House, and he uh, was on the phone call um, as, as per White House protocol when President Trump had his uh, very problematic co uh, telephone conversation with uh, Vladimir Zelensky. And uh, at that point, uh, th this is the conversation that ultimately gave rise to the impeachment proceedings against President Trump uh, because the specific uh, topic under discussion was at, at that point, there was about $200 million in uh, congressionally approved aid, uh, specifically military aid, that had been approved to be released uh, by the Pentagon to the to the, uh, the Ukrainian government and to specifically uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, and it was in the course of this conversation that uh, that was, of course, uh, under standard procedure in the White House. Uh, whenever there's a discussion between heads of state or uh, heads of the government. There, the, the protocol is that there's always um, at least two other parties on the line listening to the phone call. One of them is from the State Department, and one of them is typically a, a military attache um, uh, within the White House staff. And on that particular phone call, uh, Colonel Vindman was, uh, was the military attache. And when he heard the the uh, the course of the discussion, and with, with specifically what transpired, whereby uh, President Trump appeared to be um, uh, threatening to withhold the military aid from the Ukrainian government, uh, even though it had been specifically approved and authorized and passed by Congress that he was specifically withholding it in exchange for, uh, you might recall there was a bit of a conversation where he said, "And but um, there's something I would like you to do for me, or words to that effect, that he, that he, he seemed to be putting uh, President Zelensky right on the spot. And in any event, um, Colonel Binman uh, was sufficiently concerned with that conversation that he, uh, he notified the Inspector General of the State Department, which again is standard procedure on, on these kinds of issues. Um, and 
the upshot of the whole matter was that it spiraled up into the ultimate, uh, the first round of impeachment proceedings against President Trump. And Alexander Binman was uh, was one of the uh, the first witnesses, and certainly probably the most courageous witness to testify at the Senate hearings. And he specifically put his job on the line by doing so. Um, and just as a, as a side note uh, to this, which I'm sure Walter is well aware of all of this, and, and certainly correct me if you feel I've, I've misstated anything, Walter, but uh, Colonel Vindman uh, and his twin brother and his father uh, immigrated to the United States when, when Colonel Vindman was, I believe, at the age of six or, or seven. He was four. a young child. Four. four. Okay, four. So even younger. So he and his twin brother, who is also a, an officer, I'm not sure if he's a colonel or, or a major, what his rank is, but his twin brother is also a, um, a well-placed and, very, and diligent member of the U.S. military. Um, Colonel Vindman himself um, had, at that time, uh, in addition to his military experience, had obtained a master's degree from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. So he had a master's degree. He was obviously fluent in the Russian language, extremely fluent, and obviously in Ukrainian, uh, having been him, him and his twin brother being born in Ukraine and then immigrated to the United States. And I believe he's, he's written a book uh, quite recently where, and he made it, he's made it clear throughout all of his, uh, his representations that he is, uh, he is entirely patriotic and he has spent his entire life essentially uh, supporting the, the democracy. And he is just immensely appreciative for the opportunity to have come to the United States at such a young age and enjoyed all of the benefits and the perquisites and the, uh, the education and everything that he was able to obtain in the United States. So bottom line, um, and I watched every moment of his testimony before the Senate and um, he did an extremely courageous and a, a extremely a selfless act in in laying those facts out before the United States Senate, and he paid the price immediately. He was almost immediately demoted. Um, the president, <clears throat> President Trump, <clears throat> excuse me, effectively set the dogs on him in the White House, and he was forced to resign. So he was out of there at a very short distance from having having made his testimony. Um, uh, so I, hopefully that might clarify. He's he's uh, very well uh, versed and well experienced and um, very courageous uh, person. In addition to any of his his specific military talents and military expertise, so very much a worthwhile witness to uh, to uh, listen to. I'm sure every word would be of of great import. Anyway, that's uh, that's all I have to say on that point. I'll take myself down. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, RJ, too. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you for that, Leonard. Um, I watched all the hearings and everything. What I was having trouble with was putting together current situation in Ukraine 
with everything that he went through the last few years. And you really helped me because it's kind of like, I don't know that I ever heard an explanation uh, about um, what the impact would have been if the funding had been provided at that time versus the withholding of the funding for Ukraine. So that could be my question. Is that to me or? Sure. Or anyone. Yeah. Okay. Well, from my understanding and the, the nature of the discussions to the extent that I followed them, uh, I don't think there's ever been a, a, a final solid determination made on that point, but uh, the upshot of it was to certainly, um, certainly throw the, the the scheduling and the uh, the military planning and the logistics and distribution of materiel to the Ukrainian forces, it clearly threw that off schedule and clearly uh, delayed. All would and would have had all kinds of spin-off delays downstream from that uh, from that matter. And just going by recollection, that was a couple of years ago. My recollection is that there was an interval of a that President Trump had held that um, specific allocation of of military materiel. Uh, it was held up for, I believe, six months. And I stand to be corrected on that, but uh, if anybody has a better timeline, but uh, my my remembrance of that is that the the congressional from the congressional approval of the of the delivery of the material to the final kind of foot dragging, reluctant, um, begrudging release, finally by President Trump, after uh, Colonel Vindman had effectively drawn the attention of the world to these things um, that a period of about six months or more had elapsed. So clearly that would have impacted the the Ukrainian military endeavors in, in a number of different ways. And, uh, you know, I defer to any of the military experts to give, give further details on that, uh, on that specific impact. So that's, uh, that's all I can offer on that point. Thank you, Lennon. Uh, Adam, please go ahead. Hi. Um, I've actually not been able to follow the situation on the ground the last couple of days as closely as I have been the last couple months. Uh, I was wondering if someone has a couple moments to maybe uh, go through kind of the highlights or what are the big developments in the last two to three days. There were two major developments uh, during the last uh, two to five days, actually, are Ukrainians uh, using a TB2 drone to hit uh, two Russian raptors near Snake Island and the Russian forces uh, attacking the Azovstal uh, factory starting yesterday and trying to take it over. Uh, there is some developments in the Donbass as well. Uh, there is a Russian advance uh, near Izium. And uh, we will have someone soon to give us a full military update on the situation on the ground in Ukraine, Adam. So stick with us, please. Thank you. Drake, please go ahead. 
Drake, you have your hand up. Please go ahead. All right, uh, Christopher. Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon to anywhere around the world. Um, I have a question for the panel. I've been seeing rumblings across Twitter that Russia wants to parade in Mariupol, and there are some people saying that Ukrainians should bomb it. I'm thinking, thinking that's a bad idea, and it will give Russia the, oh, we need to mobilize kind of rhetoric. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I doubt the Russians will stage a parade in a city that they have besieged and destroyed. But we will see whether the uh, Ukrainian forces would choose to attack targets in Mariupol during a function hosted by Russian forces occupying the city or not. I believe that's a decision for them to make. Uh, The whole... uh, uh, The whole... uh, situation doesn't make any sense and it's probably just a piece of misinformation that is making the rounds thank you thank you christopher owners please go ahead owners drake Um, hi, yes. Um, I, I wanted to know that um, was there any updates, whatever, on the marble, Mar- um, whatever the Astel, the steel, the steel mill? Any updates on that? Well, I've just woken up and I'm still catching up with everything that I missed uh, when I went to bed. So, um... hey guys, I can I can answer that. Um, well, Russians are storming uh, Mariupol steel mill. Uh, last like two days uh, very actively uh, in the basements there are still civilians and uh, like hundreds uh, hundreds something uh, was uh, evacuated successfully but uh, 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 still there are uh, Ukrainian forces uh, civilians and lots of wounded people uh, but the attack is still not successful Ukrainian forces are still holding up uh, the freshest news that uh, they didn't uh, uh, like contact uh, the government uh, but uh, the uh, fact that uh, they are still holding is, uh, is is still is you know I'm sorry I'm from Ukraine my English is not perfect um, and uh, under Izum uh, Ukrainians uh, bombed a major command point and uh, presumably killed a, a very high-ranking Russian general. Uh, and the fact that uh, General uh, himself went to to that common point like in person, uh, it says a lot uh, about that uh, they have to uh, make decisions at uh, uh, like on site uh, and send send some high-ranking, uh, you know. Um, soldier uh, <laughs> all right generals uh, one of the main uh, and uh, lots of supplies were bombed there and uh, it was a major Ukrainian uh, like offensive operation uh, and Izum is 
well, it, it has uh, a major route uh, to cut off uh, supplies to Kharkiv. That's it. Thank you yeah. for this uh, update, Drake. Uh, uh, sorry, Drake. How can I pronounce your name? W-O? What can I call you? Uh, it's Ilya, actually. It's called Shaw, like a nickname, Sean. but oh, okay. the name is Ilya. Yeah. Ilya. Thank you. Yeah. Drake? Yeah, uh, another question, right? How long do you think whatever it would take whatever before Ukrainian forces like migrate over to into that area, whatever, and be able to start like fighting? How long do you think that probably that possibly would take? You're asking about deploying more Ukrainian forces to Mariupol? Yes. Uh, Walter, do you have any update on that? Well, Drake, we, we're currently not seeing any mobilization towards uh, Mariupol or deployment towards Mar Mariupol as uh, Ukrainian forces need first to advance on uh, the Mykolaiv Kherson front. Uh, and from there, they need to push back the Russians all the way back to Mariupol. So let me just take a couple of looks at the recent situational updates and I'll get back to you. Uh, let, let me uh, say one more thing. Uh, President Zelensky is now uh, putting all the democratic uh, powers. He's he's talking to the United Nations and he talks about uh, evacuating uh, the troops and civilians that are uh, trapped in uh, in the steel mill. So uh, I think Russian or Ukrainian forces uh, won't attack Mariupol because. Uh, the only valuable thing there that is left is its people. And also, I think uh, Russians may stage the parade in Mariupol uh, to show uh, there that that they they had uh, the city and uh, to, to to show uh, the propaganda uh, some some winnings, some advances because. Uh, First, they promised to to take Ukraine like in a couple of days, and now it's seventieth day or maybe seventy first, uh, and they have uh, have have to have uh, some winnings, some uh, artifacts, and some results uh, by the ninth of May, which is like uh, a victory day in Ukraine. By the, uh, in Russia, by the way, in in Ukraine, it's it's cancelled, uh, and the eighth of May uh, is called the Memory Day uh, with the slogan "Never Again." Thank you, Sean. Good morning, Colby, or good evening, where you are. Good evening. Good uh, morning to you, Em. Um, with regard to Mariupol. Uh, in the last 24 hours, Russian forces attacked both uh, Orkiv and Kuliapol. Uh, so uh, Ukraine is still sort of on the back foot there. They don't have the initiative um, on that front or in that area of operations. So um, obviously everybody would very much like to hear news that Ukrainian forces are able to um, go back on the offensive and try and mount a relief operation towards Mariupol. But as it stands, uh, we haven't seen that happen, and uh, it would seem that they just have much more pressing concerns further east in the, the JFO area, where Russia is still mounting, um, you know, fairly significant uh, attacks on, on multiple different axes of uh, advance. So that's really 
um, consuming all of their uh, resources right now. So, thank you, Kobe. Uh, stop uh, Iran. This is um, whatever it is. Go ahead. Come on, this is uh, the same like revanchism, but different. Uh, and I'm also learning how to pronounce irredentism. But... Well, you know, what do I know? I'm just an intermediate English language student. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, um, about not funny uh, subject, uh, not so funny about Mariupol, uh, uh, you know, outrageously that uh, they put those 260, I think, Ukrainians, civilian Ukrainians evacuated from uh, Mariupol steel plant through, again, through filtration camps which were they were humiliated uh, of course by russian soldiers uh and two were detained uh, the lady uh, one lady was detained in this filtration camp from the mariupol steel factory because she is a, a ex-police officer and she was detained with her uh, sister so probably they will be separated because that's what russian nazis do they separate if someone if relatives work for a ukrainian state they separate kids from uh, from parents or relatives. That's that's they do it as we see even to Mariupol uh, hostages and um, good job Red Cross allowing it all because this is all under a United Nations and Red Cross umbrella. This evacuation, so um, because not a good job. It's it's a shame that they allowed to go Ukrainians through filtration camps. Um, so, what about parade? If they stupid enough to parade in destroyed Mariupol, which is now uh, prisoners, uh, civilians of Mariupol for food, kind of cleaning, and uh, if they stupid enough to put soldiers in rows to march there, I think it's a legitimate uh, target. And uh, if Ukrainian commanders decide to to, to attack it with drones or other means, it's uh, it's a legitimate uh, target. And don't worry about Russia escalating after this. They don't act like this. Again, remember, Russia acts on absence of action, not on action. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. Coming up next, Armando. Can't hear anything. Yeah, they are taking longer than usual to connect. I don't know why. Yeah, until it's uh, if it's so silent, I can just add that. Uh, remember, the Ukrainians uh, learned it in uh, in the in the worst way. They were told by Polish people in 1980, early 90s, that appeasing Russians, Russians won't work. 
and they, they told us by own experience, so the same Lithuanians were told into Ukrainians. Well, uh, again, <laughs> we didn't, we were friends with Moscow and we got uh, only humiliations every week uh, from Kremlin, only provocations. Then they started Tuzla in 2007. You probably don't even know this word, but this is first attack of Russians on, on Ukrainian soil. In 2007, when the best relations between Russia and Ukraine happened, so again, don't be uh, don't be afraid to upset Russians. They act not on your actions, but the absence of your actions. If if they treat you like shit, they should instantly get something back. Uh, if not, well, you know what will happen. Thank you, Ben. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning to everyone. Um, I, I'm sorry, Ed, I'm going to uh, turn the, the highlight on you. I was wondering, like, over the past 80-some um, days, what has surprised you the most? Because you seem to be pretty connected with all these things, and I guess you were less, uh, well, surprised than most of us. But um, what, what, what has caused a, as a true uh, novelty for you? Uh, or is it all uh, unfolding, uh, following your plans? I'm sorry, can you repeat that, Ben? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was wondering if um, any of the aspects of the current conflict have surprised you, and or rather, which one has surprised you the most? What, what weren't you expecting um, over the past uh, over the past eight days? What has what has come to fruition or what has uh, in what happened that that surprised some, someone like you who is much better versed in this sort of a subject than, uh, than, than most of us well I, I, I was definitely surprised by the performance of the Ukrainian armed forces and I was surprised by uh, the lack of uh, readiness on uh, the side of the Russian forces also, I was surprised that they kept trying doing the same thing over and over and over again in several on several fronts. For instance, uh, the aerial assault against Hostomol and uh, bringing uh, helicopters into Kherson, even though they got shelled by Ukrainian art artillery several times. So, uh, during the early uh, days of uh, the invasion, I thought that uh, Kiev would fall in 72 to 96 hours, and I was mistaken. Uh, but the biggest surprise was how poorly uh, equipped and how poorly the Russian forces uh, performed. And I was uh, surprised, happily of course, by the performance of the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, the way they deployed uh, their troops and the way they uh, conducted several operations in a manner that helped them economize uh, their stockpiles of weapons and ammunition and also reduce uh, uh, casualties to their troops. Uh, I wasn't surprised that the United States government and the governments of NATO countries would provide Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian government with uh, uh, intelligence to help uh, fight off that invasion. Uh, but then again, I was also surprised of the scale of the intelligence provided and almost near uh, near real time 
uh, actionable intelligence that was provided to the Ukrainian armed forces. As for everything else that has been happening in Moscow and happening around the world due to the invasion, it was pretty much uh, textbook. Colby. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I agree with all that. Uh, I've always sort of been in this skeptic camp when it came to Russia's military strength, but what we're seeing is beyond anything that I could have imagined. There's virtually nobody who believed that it could be this bad. Um, it is just shocking how poor their performance has been. So that's been one big shocker for most uh, analysts, uh, professional and, and uh, you know, just uh, casual um, hobbyists. Um, with regard to Ukraine, I, I knew that they would put up a fight um, because I was aware that they had been training for the past seven years. And I knew that they had, um, you know, soldiers who had experienced combat over the past uh, seven years as well. Um, but their resistance has certainly been beyond what I expected. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, and I actually, uh, I put out a tweet about this at the beginning, that Ukraine's strategic predicament that they faced at the outset is essentially identical to that of Poland in 1939 uh, when they were facing Nazi Germany, both in sort of just the, the terrain and the similarities with uh, the Vistula and the Dnipro. So if you had told me that Ukraine was going to deploy along the entire border, as Poland did in 1939, and that they would be successful in holding the Russians back on multiple different avenues, uh, I would have told you, no fucking way. They're going to get destroyed if they do that. Their only hope is to try and pull back and trade some territory away, uh, trade space for time, um, because the frontier is just way too long for them to defend um, from multiple different avenues, from the south, from the north, from the east. No way, but they did it, um, which again, it comes back to the Russians being grossly inept. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, surprises throughout the war. And, uh, you know, us here in the group, we uh, were all very happy to admit it, uh, what we got wrong. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That was very, that was very clear. Thanks a lot. Um, thank you. Uh, as most of citizens of Ukraine, I was not surprised uh, by the strengths of our armed forces because, uh, as, as you said, we, we have trained for the uh, last um, eight years and uh, we relied a lot on uh, uh, the intelligent information that we were given. Uh, as I already said, uh, we knew... Uh, before the attack, uh, the positions of, of Russian forces uh, and uh, when and where they will attack. Well, it's not 100% uh, sure information, uh, but but still we had a line of defenses uh, and uh, strategically uh, Russia uh, made a huge mistake by uh, attacking with uh, quite a small groups by uh, in a lot of uh, directions um, they had to to take a lot of uh, land and cities uh, and and cause chaos 
because they had uh, a, a weak uh, intelligence by themselves, because, uh, you know, US and, and Britain didn't help them. Uh, and that's why their uh, first attack uh, was uh, was just a, a, such a fail. And in Ukraine, there is a meme, uh, Chernobyevka. It's uh, a, a small uh, town near the Kherson. It's on south of Ukraine. Uh, well, Russian troops uh, made the, uh, a military base there like 18 times, which was hit because it was... Uh, an ex- uh, the, the same position like Chernobyl airport they stored uh, uh, helicopters there and some uh, you know soldiers but 18 times <laughs> they didn't learn from their mistakes at all uh, and one other thing I I wanted to say uh, on on the Zmini uh you know, uh, Snake Island in the Black Sea. Uh, Ukraine also hit uh, uh, Russian forces and and destroyed not only two uh, gunboats, <laughs> but a, a common center with uh, radio defense and uh, capture. You know. Uh, also, uh, I've just read uh, a piece of the news that uh, thanks to uh, the intelligence data that was provided by the uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence, uh, almost 30 generals already were already killed by the precision you know, hits of the Ukrainian forces. Uh, and one last thing, uh, why didn't uh, Russians uh, capture Kiev uh, like in, in the first days? Because of its uh, geographical position, uh, it seems close to Belarus where, where they started the, the attack. But Kiev has a lot of suburbs, a lot of uh, swamps there. So the terrain is uh, very... Uh, hard to to um, advance as fast as uh, they thought. <laughs> and a fun fact: uh, Russians operated with the paper maps uh, dated like within the 90s. And during the recent the communization of Ukraine of Ukraine, uh, many. Uh, you know, geographical locations were renamed and they were with their outdated map, like, like where's the uh, city called like that? And this city isn't called like that anymore. Uh, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And uh, Ben. Sorry, um, early morning, big question. Um, there's a lot of talk at the moment of the both camps digging in and of the war lasting a lot longer. Um, I did some back of the envelope calculation on the, on the Russian ability to sustain financially such a long war, and it doesn't look very good. Um, but I was wondering, from your point of view, is there is there a possibility for the Russians to sort of pull off 
most of their forces just hold the line and wait for wait for you know one year or two years until something happens or or is there sort of a expiry date on the Russian army and beyond that point they just won't be able to go anywhere or rather beyond that point they, they would just collapse because they won't have food and spare parts and the oil and stuff like that so I was wondering if you if you had a an idea on how long the Russians can hold the line. Kobe, would you like to take this one? Well, that's the million-dollar question, of course. Um, at this point, I would say that Russia is the best they can hope for is to try and turn this into sort of another frozen conflict. Uh, you know, if they can get the status quo into Bellum, just you know, with sort of a the Donbass. Uh, in the same state it wasn't before, sort of low intensity, you know, ceasefires, and they can violate the ceasefires as they feel like it's in their interest to do so. But um, operations at this pace are bleeding them faster than they're ble- bleeding the Ukrainians. Ukrainians have the ability to be resupplied consistently from the West. The Russian economy is cut off. They can't import critical components they need to make more military hardware, particularly advanced uh, advanced weapon systems. So it's difficult to see a scenario in which the Russian economy can um, fight this in the long haul. I would certainly say that uh, they have a far reduced capacity to fight a total war than Nazi Germany did in uh, World War II. And uh, we're actually going to be having an, an expert on, in that field uh, on the space in the future. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to get his opinion on uh, Russia's ability to, to sort of fight a, a total war or just fight a prolonged war. Um, but I would say that uh, it's not particularly good. Um, they need to try and achieve something in the short term because uh, long term, I, I only envision them getting weaker, not stronger as time goes on. Thanks a lot. The, um, but when, what can I say? If we were to look at it on the on the ability of the of the Russian to build uh, to to launch a large scale um, offensive, like right now, I guess they could if they. I mean, maybe they can't, but like they're I, trying right now. Yeah, so at least there there there's a possibility that they could. Um, for how long do you think there is a possibility that they could? And I guess the follow-up question is, is the best strategy for Ukraine to just buckle up, uh, build as many and as thick bunkers as possible and just wait for the Russians to, to collapse? The Ukrainians will allow the, the conflict to become frozen. They will, if the, if, if the Russians pull back some of their forces, they're just going to attack. Then again, I'm clueless about this thing. I might be saying something stupid. The short-term goal for Ukraine is to uh, just withstand the Russian attacks right now because they're continuing to attack, as I said earlier, on a number of different avenues. Um, you know, there are sort of brief pauses where we don't see quite as much action, but overall they have some level of initiative. But Ukraine is certainly conducting local counterattacks, particularly around the Kharkiv area. They're steadily making. Um, some modest gains there. Uh, Russia's advance is pretty much stalled, um, at least on major avenues. You know, they're taking small towns here or there, but they're still very, very heavy fighting. Uh, Papazna, Leman, 
with Bizna to Verdonetsk, um, sort of the area around Izum is uh, going a little bit worse for them, I would say. Um, but in the short term, they just need to continue to resist these main attacks. And then as Russia continues to exhaust its combat power on the offense, then the goal for Ukraine would be to uh, regain the initiative more comprehensively and start um, retaking territory because they don't, worst case scenario for them is that this just ends up status quo antebellum with frozen conflicts with Crimea still under Russian occupation and particularly with the Donbass as well still under Russian occupation. That's not a good scenario for Ukraine. Um, so they need to uh, they need to solve that problem by defeating the Russian military in the field and regaining control over all of that territory. Thanks. Very clear. Thank you, Colby. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Goose, go ahead. I just had a question about uh, shifting Russian strategy and maybe change in leadership. I think there was a rumor that quite a high level, quite a high number of, of leadership was killed in a strike. And we've suddenly seen the Russians start focusing on uh, rail and substations of the Ukrainians. Uh, can you guys speak to any leadership changes on the Russian side and perhaps this effective strategy of targeting the rail stations? Is that going to continue or become a major problem for Ukraine? Thank you. I would say that this is something that they should have been doing a while ago. Um, so they're coming a little bit late. Um, so far, there's been, I guess, a little modest success in targeting the rail infrastructure, but overall it has not been successful. I believe the DOD, DOD said today that um, shipments of the supplies to Ukraine have been largely uh, uninhibited. Um, so it is it has not been successful for Russia overall. They might have, uh, we know that they um, successfully damaged the bridge southwest of uh, Odessa at uh, Zotoka, but um, you know, and there were strikes in Lviv and some other places over the past couple of weeks. Um, but overall, the Ukrainian rail network certainly has not been compromised to any large degree. Um, so whether this uh, this shift in strategy is attributable to um, changes in leadership on the Russian side with the appointment of the theater commander, um, possibly, I guess, that's sort of a logical explanation for why they started to do that. Um, but uh, it's kind of too little too late. Uh, that should have been a higher priority, in my opinion, from the get-go. Um, but Russia does not have a very robust capacity to execute these sort of strikes now because they have exhausted a significant quantity of their uh, precision-guided munitions, standoff munitions, um, already uh, largely wastefully, in my opinion, than just uh, launching them to civilian uh, centers, um, which has not been successful. It's just sort of this typical uh, terror bombing uh, that we see from, uh, we've seen throughout history from regimes like Russia and Nazi Germany. Um, Ukrainian morale is pretty high, so uh, that sort of terror bombing is, uh, you know, obviously hasn't been successful. Big miscalculation on Russia's part um, because those are precious uh, munitions that could have certainly been used on more strategically important targets. Um, so now we see them using things like the uh, the K-300P Bastion, 
to uh, to target the, the airfield in Odessa, um, which is not its intended role. So uh, we're likely going to see more of that sort of thing. And as time goes on, we see more and more instances of uh, Russian troops um, resorting to uh, you know weapons and equipment that are clearly uh, uh, not fit for purpose. They're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, I saw a picture today of, of uh, some Russian troops with Nagants again, um, which is hilarious. It's, it's a design that's over 100 years old. Nobody should be going into combat in the 21st century with a bolt-action rifle, so um, they have uh, fairly significant problems with their uh, stock of modern armaments based on the information we're, we're seeing. Okay, that's really great. Thank you. And uh, I'd just like to praise the Ukrainian rail workers as well on a side note. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Goose. Thank you, Colby. Coming up next, Throttle Control. Hey, you guys. Uh, so I have a, I have a question. I'm uh, just following up on news and stuff, and I see one where a tank was... Uh, caught at a pretty high-end Russian tank. It's kind of a big deal because there's not so many of them made. Um, uh, I, I apologize, it's late here, and I don't have the story I was reading, but do you know what tank I'm talking about? The T-90 Armata? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, what about... What's the significance of that? Well, the T-90 and the Armata are two different tanks. So I imagine it was just the T-90... The, the Armada is the T-14. That's that's a system we haven't seen. So if that was actually sent, then that's like huge news. And I, I wouldn't need to see that before commenting. But if it's just the T-90, then it's, uh, you know, it's Russia's most advanced uh, tank design that they actually have in serial production. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's still a Russian tank. Not particularly good compared to any Western main battle tank. Right. Um, but it's still the best they have. What you call it? A T T what? T ninety, as opposed to the T fourteen Armada, which is the newest tank that they have. But it's still basically a prototype. It's not in serial production. There's only a few of them produced, and uh, we'll see it at the uh, the Victory Day parades for sure. I imagine. Wow, great info. Thank you, man. My so, bad. I'll good. My coffee. My bad. Yeah. My yeah. Bad. Oh, good. No, I mean, if and yes, uh, there was there has been a photo of a T ninety four days ago in Ukraine. Oh yeah, no, we've seen them. We've seen them in, in Ukraine. They've been destroyed. Some of them have already been captured previously. Um, I can find the number here from Morgs in a second. Um, so let's see how many of those have been destroyed so far. T ninety. They're lost twenty T nineties. With. Like, yeah, about 10, 10 destroyed or damaged, abandoned, 10 captured, somewhere around there. So certainly um, there haven't been that many of them deployed, mostly T-72s is the bulk of um, Russia's uh, tank force that was sent in. T-72s, T-80s, some T-64s, not too many T-90s because they are the newest. Um, so they're going to have the best protection, but there's just not that many of them to field to begin with. And I imagine there's still a, a decent number of them being held in reserve. Um, but if we actually saw the T-14 in a, in deployed in Ukraine, that would be huge because there's only like six of those, I think, uh, that have actually been made. Thank you, Colby. And uh, 
we have a couple of free uh, speaker slots. If you'd like to ask a question or bring up a topic for discussion, please feel free. Go ahead, send us a speaker request. We will gladly answer your questions and discuss your topics to the extent of our knowledge. The Walter Report space is a space being run 24-7 to bring you updates on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. The Walter Report space is... Uh, happily endorsing the Maria Aid organization. Maria Aid is a not-for-profit organization set up in Canada by current and former Canadian officers who participated in NATO Operation Unifier to train 